The passage before us today, uh, before we get into it, it, this is a this is a passage that, that that that's particularly intriguing to me. There's something there's something special here. There's as we go from place to place, from city to city, tracking through. Well, it's it's fascinating. Kind of like when we visited Greece and and uh, and, and we were moving from one set of ruins to another. After a while, things begin to blur together. Okay, imagine Paul, another city, another synagogue, another riot, hitting the road again. You know, it, it just kind of a rinse and repeat, right? This keeps happening, and, and after a while, we get it. Okay, going to be on mission. There's going to be problems. It's probably not going to end well, and where can we go next? And in your corner of the world, where you would seek to be on mission, that can be a discouraging pattern. Well, Acts 18 breaks up that pattern. I think at just the right time. There's a couple of new things that are shown us here. First of all, we're reminded of some particular spheres of ministry. What does it look like to be on mission? Well, that, that can be here and here and there and there. There are different contexts for us to carry out this mission that God has set us on. Along with that, there's a particular promise undergirding it, a promise that changes things. In the least likely of places, it changes things. Now, I say least likely of places because we're turning our attention toward Corinth. Paul has departed from Athens, and he's arrived at Corinth. And the opening verses describe his ministry there at Corinth. And that'll occur in those four different settings as we, as we talk about those. But first of all, I want to talk about Corinth. Corinth was a was a, uh, a new city. It was a shiny new city. Corinth had been destroyed by the Romans because they were on the wrong side of the Romans rising in power in about 146 B.C. But 100 years later, Julius Caesar says, you know that Corinth place? That is a strategic location. They, they, we should rebuild that city. We can build it. It's been 100 years. We build that city. It'll be our city. And they did. And they populated it with freedmen. Now, freedmen were people who had been slaves, had been given their freedom. They don't have a, a family heritage background of citizenship, but they've been given freedom. They've been made citizens. They have a new opportunity in a new place, Corinth. And the Romans are investing a lot into this new city. All the building, all the streets and everything. In fact, let me show you a couple pictures. This is the main entrance, and it, okay, it's a little run down now. The, the roads have a little bit of potholes, but I tell you, it looks better than 119th, okay? And it's, and it's, it's a lot older, okay? This is, this is first century, and this street was still used up until about 1850s or 1870s, somewhere in there. So that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. They had, you can see the streets are paved with marble. We use asphalt today. You can see the sidewalks raised up a little bit. There's some curbing there. There were also columns, and there was a nice uh, a covered walkway, this covered porch kind of thing all the way down. And then there were shops and boutiques and offices and so forth right off of the main street. And the main street ended there at the end. You can see some stairs going up. 
And that's where any wheeled traffic, chariots or wagons or anything, would end. And you would enter the forum itself, the main downtown square, only as pedestrians. But this was a beautiful, glorious, and there was a huge entrance gate that was built up there at the end. So, so this was a, a very impressive entrance to the city. And if, it, if you see what it looks like then, you can imagine now. Okay, okay let's go to the next one. Bob's talking too much. This is the, the, uh, the remnants of one of the temples. There were, uh, there were, there were a handful of different temples, uh, probably three real major ones, to Aphrodite, to Apollo, and then this one was dedicated to the emperor's family. Uh, who considered themselves gods or divinities. And the temple in particular seems to be devoted to the Emperor Augustus's sister. So there's a remnant of that uh, where there was a big columned entranceway into the temple proper. Next picture. This is a row of offices down the south side of the forum. There was a whole row of buildings. Originally, it was a big columned porch and uh, had individual shops and restaurants. And some of those had been converted in the first century into offices. This one in particular is interesting because it seems to be the office. You can tell by the mosaic on the floor. This was the office for the head person, the administrators of the Isthmian Games. Now, you've never, you perhaps haven't heard of the Isthmian Games, but the Isthmian Games were games that happened in Greece that were probably close akin to our Olympic Games today. It was a big deal. Every two years, people would come from all over for these games that were just held just to the south of Corinth. It's called the Isthmian Games because Corinth was a city right alongside the Ismith. I'm probably not saying that right, but it's a very narrow land bridge between Greece mainland and this big peninsula, the Peloponnese Peninsula. And that, that was a very fruitful peninsula, and that's where actually the Greeks traced their true ancestry to. And they migrated up out of the Peloponnese toward Athens and then further north. And so real Greece is down there on the peninsula. And Corinth sat right at that narrow land bridge, that little skinny neck between the mainland, so any, any goods that traveled... Any, any economic but, uh, um, uh, goods and services going from south to north or north to south would travel right through Corinth. Not only that, but because of that big peninsula, if there was any ship traffic going across the, out of the Mediterranean into the Aegean Sea, and that would, it could get to Athens, but if it was going to go on to the other side of Greece, into the Adriatic Sea, if it was going to carry on toward Rome, it would have to go all the way around that peninsula, which would be an extra seven to ten days. Or they could save seven to ten days of shipping, and they could save the potential with storms going around the, the tip of the peninsula, the storms losing the entire cargo, as you read about sometimes in the New Testament, if they pulled into the harbor on one side of Corinth, unloaded the goods there, carried it a couple of miles across that very narrow land neck, and then loaded it up again on boats on the other side. And so that unloading and moving and, and, and loading again the cargo, it, it saved a lot of time, saved a lot of money, but the Corinthians took a little cut for that. Just wet their beak a little bit. Just had a little piece of the, of, the, of the goods flowing through, right? Customs and excise and a little fee for the loading and unloading. And they made piles of money off all this stuff that came through, north and south and east to west, west to east. All of this, not things they produced, 
Not things they were creating, but they were enriching themselves off of. Corinth was the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. It was like that because of all the money, all the prosperity, all the new construction, as well as the temples, especially to Aphrodite and to Apollo and the immorality that was associated with them. What went on in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And there was a lot that went on in Corinth. It had a reputation across the empire. And not only that, they had those games and the distractions of sport and the, the, the tourist dollars that came in or drachmas or shekels or whatever it was in the day. The, the tourist money that came into Corinth because of people coming to the games, because of people coming to the temples, both of which were big draws. And so there's a lot of money. There's a lot of distractions in Corinth. Economically prosperous, easily distracted in immoral ways, entertainment, and sports. Sound familiar? Corinth is a lot like the West today. We live in Corinth, so to speak. A lot of the troubles that you read about in the Corinthian letters, as Paul's addressing things in this church, it seemed like such a problematic church. And yet, those are the same kind of troubles that we have in the church today. We are impacted. We, 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 have, we have grown out of our culture. And so as we come into the church, we're not suddenly, automatically changed and different. That is a growth process, even as it was in Corinth. And the kind of things that they're struggling with, the kind of things that are confronted in those letters to the Corinthians are because those are the atmosphere of the age in which they live. That's the environment of Corinth. That's their habitat. And so it's not surprising the church was, in, was, was um, impacted in these ways. Now what's encouraging is in this seemingly less likely city, you would think maybe it would have been in Philippi. Maybe it would have been out of the way there in the middle of Macedonia and Achaia in Greece. There tucked away in Berea when there was such a welcome for God's word. That that would have been the place that Paul would have settled down and invested. And the gospel would have really taken roots and spread from there. Actually, it turns out to be Corinth. There's things that we can be reminded of about ministry in Corinth in terms of being on mission everywhere. Now, I've titled the message today, On Mission with Emmanuel. You could add into that, On Mission Everywhere with Emmanuel. I'm going to tie in that Emmanuel promise in the end. But first of all, as I read the first eight verses of Acts chapter 18... I want you to think about context, four different spheres of being on mission, four different places or contexts where we are on mission for Christ. Acts chapter 18, from verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because it was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Tent making was a big deal in Corinth, especially because of the visitors, especially around the times of the games. The Olympic village was a tent village, and that was the case in this year in 50 AD when Paul is arriving. So the same trade as the tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and sought to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was able to be fully occupied with the word, devoting himself to ministry, testifying to the Jews that Christ was, that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments. He said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. What a great location. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, rather than opposing that all the more, he believed in the Lord together with his entire household, his own family. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, that's about the time that you would expect the riot to come, right? So far, in city after city, just about that time, things seem to be going pretty well. Now's about the time for a riot to arise and for Paul to be moved on. But before we look at that, Let's pause and be reminded of, we, we get a little more description here of what Paul's ministry looks like in a variety of spheres. And I wanted to spend just a couple of minutes on that first this morning. When it comes to being on mission, we can have a particular... I remember when I was... When, when we felt called into missions, Julie and I, I had a particular notion in my head of what missions and missionaries looked like and what they did. And I said, well, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a church planter, and I'm not a doctor, so what room is there for me in missions? What do, what do I do? What do I know? Well, at the time, I, I knew electronics really well. I knew radios and transmitters really well. How does that fit into missions? I didn't know anything about a mission broadcaster called Transworld Radio that we would end up serving for 10 years with in Africa. But we have a notion in our head about what mission, what being on mission, what being witnesses for Christ concerning our faith, what that looks like. And yet Paul teases out, or I think we can see within this passage, four different spheres that I want us to think about. First of all, and I've listed these in your notes, first of all, on mission at work. Paul begins in the marketplace, and he reaches out there. He approaches another couple who share the same trade as, as he. We, we know that Aquila and Priscilla become Christians, settled in their faith, who are then, who are, who are then teaching and discipling others. And we don't know at this point, are they already Christians, or they, do they also become Christians under Paul's ministry in Corinth? That we don't know. It could be that they were Christians when they were in Rome, when they were expelled from Rome, because the church was, the gospel was already in Rome at that time. That's what the riots were about. That's why Jews were expelled from Rome in the first place. So we don't know exactly what's happening with Priscilla and Aquila, but we know that Paul starts there. His first mission, his first ministry is in the marketplace, in the workaday world, sewing tents, talking to people who need tents. I need a tent, I need it like this, or I need a, a cover for the deck of the ship, and it should be this size, and it's going to be like this. Oh, where are you going? Paul's done some traveling, and on the conversation goes, and who knows how it weaves around into the gospel. Imagine all the conversations one place after another in those new in those shops there in Corinth as Paul is working away on his on his tents. Conversations with Aquila and Priscilla, conversations with others. Many of you tomorrow morning will be back at work. And there you are, ambassadors for Christ, cleverly disguised 
in all kinds of different vocations. I remember my years in the Air Force where, where, when I didn't work in a Christian mission or at a church. You know, I go to work today and I'm surrounded by Christians. It's miserable. There's hardly anybody to witness to. I mean, most of the people on staff, I think, are, are actually born-again believers. Well, they are. And, and that's a wonderful privilege. Don't get me wrong. I, I love our church staff. But I do remember those days, those years, when I engaged with a whole mix. I had, I had a good friend when I was teaching electronics that he was also a believer. And yet most of those other instructors on our team were not. And they ran the whole gamut from, yeah, yeah I go to church, but mm, yeah, it's, just like, it's just something I do, to, no, I don't really have much interest in church, don't really do that, why would I? What, why do you do that? To those that, no, not interested at all, been there, done that, no thank you, to those who would openly mock and ridicule. Anybody who had faith in Christ ran the whole gamut. I used to have, in fact, one, one time I remember that we interrupted the electronics teaching for the day. I could have been so easily shut down on this if God wasn't somehow in it. For, for a whole hour, students were asking me about things that I believed about the Bible. Why did I believe that? And what was I teaching at this Bible study that I had mentioned to them and I taught at a church just, just outside the base gate? And... and um, for an hour we talked about that. After the, after the next break came back, we, came, we had to get back onto the lesson plan, had to get back to electronics again. But I could have been so easily shut down on those kind of conversations. And yet God protected and never was. But there's different openings that we get that we are in the midst of our vocations, we're brought alongside other people. And that is an opportunity for mission. That is a place where ministry can happen. It did in Corinth. Paul often engaged with people in the marketplace. Now, I remember hearing somebody talk about in the midst of their witness at work, and well, you know, I'm not the best Christian, but I don't quite understand that, actually. I, I know what it is that causes us to say that about ourselves because we know ourselves and we know our weakness and our failings. But I don't know what a best Christian is because my understanding of a Christian is somebody who has embraced the grace that is given us in Christ Jesus. That exactly we do not measure up. And that's, that's our claim to being believers in Jesus. That I don't measure up. I am a broken person in a broken world in desperate need of my Savior. So I don't have to pretend that I'm good. I don't have to pretend that I'm better than I am before the people that I work with. What if they find out? What I'm really like. What if, I, what if they find out what's really going on inside my head or in my heart, that I'm actually more like them than I want to admit? That's exactly some of me that they maybe need to see. Because we are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. And what about that time when I mess up, when I blew it, or I was selfish, or I said something unkind? And my response there can be, well, I'm glad Jesus forgives. I hope they will. I'm glad Jesus forgives. I hope the boss will. And that's a, maybe it's a, a lighthearted vulnerability, but it puts it in context that I also need the forgiveness of others, even as I will forgive others, even as God in Christ has forgiven me. We don't have to be perfect at work. We don't have to be the best behaved at work in order to be a witness for Christ and what he has done for us in the midst of our vocation. Another place 
Paul ministers in the synagogue. Paul ministers in the midst of public worship. And he's invited into different places because of his own background, his own training. And he's a Pharisee. And, and, and he's been trained in the scriptures. And so there's some recognition that gives him an opportunity. But he seeks to minister in the place of public worship where those who believe in God can be found. Well, t- for us today, that's not going to be the synagogue. That's going to be a church. You can be on mission at church. Our culture, just like Corinth was, the church in Corinth was impacted by their culture. We are impacted by our culture. And our culture is, before anything else, we are a consumer culture. We consume goods and services. That's what we do. That's part of the American dream, isn't it? We consume stuff. And, and businesses exist and shops are open so that they can provide or try to provide for us various goods and services, convincing us that they need them so that they can benefit from us and separate us from our dollars. That's how it works. Well, so carried along in the currents of this consumer culture, we easily take that mindset into church. And we think, I come to church on, on Sunday morning so that I will benefit spiritually. I will be fed. I will receive blessing from the church service. I will be built up. I will be encouraged. I hope that you came with that expectation. But not with that expectation only. I would encourage you to also come with the expectation that, Lord, maybe this prayer on your, on your lips, as you're driving to church, Lord, would you make me a blessing at church, at the church gathered, at the body of Christ gathered together this morning, would you make me a blessing to someone? Father, would you help me? Would you help me to notice and encourage somebody that needs encouraging? Would you help me to come alongside somebody? Would you help me to notice In somebody's eyes when I greet them that, hey, let's just pause and pray. Would you help me to maybe pass on some wisdom, some instruction, something I've learned that somebody else, my brother, my sister, doesn't know yet that they could benefit from where you've walked with me. Lord, would you use me to encourage, to strengthen, to teach, to build up one of my brothers and sisters in Christ when we gather this morning? That's why Christians are told to come to church. Did you know that? We're not told in the Bible to come to church so that you can receive spiritual goods and services from the church. We are told to not forsake, not to give up on the gathering of yourselves together, as is the practice of some, but to encourage one another and to provoke one another. No, not that way. To provoke one another in love and good deeds. To encourage one another all the more. To strengthen somebody else a little more in the faith. We are all supposed to gather together with that on our minds. God, use me in the church for some ministry that's needed. What about in homes? I'm I'm convinced that significant ministry in terms of spiritual growth occurs in smaller groups. It doesn't merely occur in a Sunday morning gathering, but in smaller groups. It might be on Sunday mornings, it might be on Sunday evenings, might be middle of the week, might be in a community group at at, at someone's home around a table. It might be a small group that you host in your home and you go to somebody else's home. It might be making the time to just gather together with another family and connect with them in their own habitat. You know, you just get to know somebody better. 
in their own setting, in their own environment, in their own habitat. There's something that bonds us close together. There's something about food as well, especially good food. Does anybody here like good food? There's something about sharing together in good food that, that connects us together. Families do that. Oh, families, do not neglect the gathering together around the table for that shared meal. We do that less and less, and that's a loss to us in our families. If we're family as church, why don't we do that more with one another as well? Ministry in our own homes, maybe out of our own homes. Our homes is a ministry circle for neighbors. I know some folks here in the church who they recently did a particular addition, kind of a deck thing. And so one of the things they did is they invited the neighbors, hey, let me show you what I built. And it's kind of a fun thing. Yeah, you share with people around you who know you were building and the hammering, the nails and all that was just driving them crazy for weeks. And now you can share it with them. And it's a reason to get together over food and make relational connections. In our last church, before we came here, we were in South Africa, and our church in Johannesburg had something called Matthew parties. I think I've talked about them before. But a Matthew party is intentionally inviting friends, people you're connected with, maybe from work and other places, that don't go to church. These are not church people. You see, we're always in danger of only hanging out with church people because a lot of our life may be involved with things related to the church and, and intentionally inviting people over that were not church people, kind of like Matthew, the tax collector, did. He said, Jesus, I'm going to have a dinner. Would you and your disciples come? Or maybe just some of your disciples, not the judgmental ones. That was the thing. When you're gathering together a bunch of non-church people that are going to say some non-church things, you've got to be careful that you invite some of your Christian friends too who can connect with them and enjoy being with them and who aren't going to withdraw and be judgmental that these guys aren't well enough behaved because they're not. Why would they be? Matthew party, an opportunity to get to know people around you and for them to also know some of your Christian friends that might be that relationships connect there where the gospel can be shared. Finally, not only does, does Paul go on mission at work there in the marketplace making tents, not only is he in the synagogue, not only out of somebody's home like this man, Titius Justice, but also there's this Crispus, this ruler of the synagogue, an unlikely person we wouldn't expect him to believe necessarily. He seems to be on the other team. He seems to be lined up against them when they're kicked out of the synagogue, by and large. And yet Crispus believes in Jesus. Not only that, but there's something going on in Christian's own home, in, Christian, in Crispus's own family, because we are again shown this phrase that not only Crispus, but his own household it's a time to just think again for a moment of ministry, mission within our own household, within our own families. Often we don't think about our own families. In fact, one of the dangers in, in pastoral ministry or one of the dangers when somebody is too involved in too many other ministries within a church is that they are neglecting that primary ministry within their own family, to their own spouse, and their own children. That's primary. We're told to do that. In Ephesians 5, we're told to care for one another spiritually in our marriage. In Ephesians 6, we're told to raise up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That that is primary. That we don't lose sight of that mission even as we would be on mission for the Lord in other places. So certainly... 
parents with kids, and, and we've got a lot. This is one of the reasons that, that I'd mentioned to you that, that as elders we've been talking about how we, how we start a, a, a class on Sunday morning that's, that's meant particularly for those younger couples and younger families that are, that are wanting to take some next step in marriage and family, and how do we do this together, and how can we learn not only maybe from who would lead that class, but how do we just learn from one another as well? That's important that we strengthen one another in that at-home, in-family ministry that God has given us. It doesn't stop when the kids leave home, though, does it? A lot of you are parents of adult children, and you still wish you could redirect them. You wish you could correct them. You wish you could take them from that thing they're in and say, no, you don't do that, and put them over here and say, sit down and don't touch anything, right? But when they're older, you can't do it quite that way. I've tried. It's messy, okay? Instead, it's kind of like parents of adult children are kind of like the prophet who is welcomed everywhere except in his own country. It's kind of like being Jesus in Nazareth, right? That's parents of your own kids. You could, you could be a great blessing and help to somebody else's adult kids, sometimes more than your own. And that means also one of the ways you should be praying is, or you could be praying is, Lord, would you send somebody else into their life? Send them an aunt or uncle or a grandfather type of figure that they would become close to who could also lead them and guide them where they are when we're not there. Father, would you, would you bring a friend into their lives? Somebody that becomes their friend who is a believer in and a follower of Jesus. That they would be able to share their hope with my son, my daughter. Pray that other witnesses would come and say the same things that you have been saying and want to say into their lives. Important ministry that we have at work, at church, in homes, in family, be on mission everywhere. One of the things I like about Acts 18 is it reminds us of that broad scope of mission, that we are called to be on mission. It doesn't just look like church. That's one of the places, and there are several others. But I've tried that. And sometimes when I've tried it, it hasn't worked out so well. My experience has been more like Paul at Philippi. Well, maybe I didn't wind up in jail. Maybe it was Paul at Thessalonica. Well, I was distinctly told that my input and my thoughts and my trying to, quote, shove my faith down somebody else's throat was not welcome here. You've been told that. Maybe not in so many words, but it came across, thank you. And it's easy to withdraw, be a little discouraged. I thought it was going to go differently. I had grand ideas and hopes about how God was going to use me in this place at work or among these neighbors. And so far, not going real well. God somehow has, has blessed me with the honoriest neighbor I've ever heard of. I don't, I don't mean my neighbors. Don't tell my neighbors I said that. But, but sometimes that might be the way we're feeling, okay? Sometimes it's thrown back in your face. No thank you very much. How do we proceed? What keeps us going? 
Maybe Paul feels at this point when he's been made um, distinctly not welcome in the synagogue, when he, is, he is, when he is being slandered and spoken against both him and his Savior and his gospel. You're not welcome here. What you've got to say is not wanted here. About that time, maybe Paul's about ready to leave that city too. He's been here before, right? In Philippi, in Thessalonica, and then in Berea, and they came there too and stirred up trouble again, resistance against them, and he comes down to Athens, and then he's brought before the grand jury there in Athens, and he, he, he gives a wonderful answer for his faith, and they say, yeah, we might need to call you back. It's interesting, before they call him back, he leaves town again, and now he's in Corinth, and opposition emerges again, and it's at that point that the Lord meets him. Because in this least likely of all of those places, the least likely place that you would expect the gospel to really take root and flourish. Well, maybe it shouldn't be the least likely. Maybe it's where the need was the most obvious. And people are most openly trying to fill that need in all kinds of other ways that this is the very place. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to Matthew's party, and Matthew's party, on a big scale, is in Corinth. And so, there, that night, or one night right around the, these events, in verse 9, the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Doesn't say they won't attack you. It says it can't stick. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Psalm 27 says, of whom will I be afraid? Who can touch me? Really? He says, not only that, not only will I protect you, no one can take them out of my hand, Jesus says. Neither height nor depth nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can touch us ultimately. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you for I have many people in this city who are my people. There are many here in this city that I'm going to call to myself. There is a greater work still to be done in this city. Don't be afraid, Paul. Don't be hesitant. Don't be silent. Keep on speaking. I am with you. I will strengthen you. I'm going to bless you. Now, maybe that's just a dream Paul has that what he really most wanted to hear. How does Paul know that this vision that night is not from the good food in Corinth, but it's from the Lord? How does Paul know? How would you know if you had that kind of vision from the Lord? He said, well, God just put on my heart that, that he is with me. How would you know that's true? Because that's what God has been saying to his people from the very beginning. Any word from the Lord better agree with what you know God has already said. And you could go all the way back to Genesis on this one. That, that promise handed down from Abraham to Isaac was, I am with you, in Genesis 26. Handed down from Isaac to Jacob, who wasn't terribly deserving of it, I am with you, I will not forsake you. 
And then Moses. Moses can't go into the land, but God's people are going to enter their inheritance. And, and Moses hands off that same promise, the promise of God to his people, to Joshua, on behalf of those who are going to enter their inheritance. And this is that promise. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Do not be afraid of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Wherever you go on Sunday morning, he says, I am with you. I will not leave you hanging there. Joshua, the message is repeated to him personally. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Not only to Moses, but to God's prophets. God's messenger in the midst of an age that really didn't want to hear it from them. I love Isaiah 41. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. Moms, when you're in the middle on mission with a, a house full of little ones, remember Isaiah 41. Don't be afraid. I know, there are two. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right arm. Not only that, but Jeremiah, same, same message. They will fight against you. Is that still the toddlers? They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. I am with you. Jeremiah chapter 1. Verse 6, you say, oh yeah, but those are prophets. I mean, those are, they're well-seasoned in God's word and in his service. <laughs> Don't think of Jeremiah that way. Jeremiah is called when he's uh, um, an older teen, maybe very early 20s. Then I said, ah, oh, Lord God, <laughs> behold, I don't know how to speak. I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. I don't, but Moses or Jeremiah, God is not accepting excuses, Okay. Because he is with you. Not because he expects more out of you, but he knows you can expect more out of him. That's the difference. Do not say I'm only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you will go, and whatever I command you, you will speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. That's, that's a promise you can take back to school tomorrow, back to university. I am with you. And so, the Lord picks up on that in Matthew 28. That great commission verse where he says, he says, go into all the world and, and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things as I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even unto the very end of the age. No matter how bad it gets, I don't get tired, I don't get weary, I won't leave, I won't run away, I won't be distracted. He says, I am with you. And so, Hebrews 13 says to Hebrews in general and to anybody in Corinth besides, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said what we have is who has us. Be content with what you have because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, 
The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God's promise to Paul here has been God's word to his people through the ages. Don't be afraid. What, what, when the angels show up, every time an angel shows up, what, what's the first thing out of their mouth? Don't be afraid. Why? Because when an angel shows up, angels are scary and people are afraid. I mean, it's a major supernatural encounter. Why does Jesus tell Paul here? Paul is the great missionary, the great evangelist. Why is it that Jesus tells Paul here, don't be afraid, don't withdraw, don't stop speaking? Because Paul also could be afraid, could be discouraged, could withdraw, just like you and I. I'm amazed that when Paul asked people to pray for him, I think it's the end of Ephesians, and he says, and pray for me that I would speak boldly for the Lord the way that I ought to speak. I never thought of Paul needing anybody pray for him to speak. I would have thought with Paul, kind of like me, the problem is pray for him to not speak so much. But apparently, Paul was a little more like us than we realize. And Paul's God is very much like our Savior, who says, I am with you. I don't know if it's at work or if it's at church, if it's a ministry at church that you're, you're, you're worn down in or something that you're afraid to give yourself to, but it keeps coming back to you, but you say, there's got to be somebody who could be better at that than me. That is not at all the point. It's, Lord, what would you have me to do? I don't know if it's in somebody else's home with other people or if it's the idea of opening your home and, and, and getting close to people in a relationship and what might surface there that you don't want other people to know about you. I don't know, in your own family, afraid to speak up because you've been shut down before, but I do know this. In the middle of any fear that presses us to be quiet, God says this, do not be afraid. Go ahead and speak up. Because I am with you. And I have many people who are in this city. There's still much to do. There's still fruit to be born. And so, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is still true. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, abounding on mission. Why? Because you know that your labor, your toil, your effort is not going to be for nothing. In the Lord. God will use it. He has many people that he is still calling. Galatians 6, 9. Therefore, let us not grow weary in well-doing, in doing good, in carrying out what God has said before us. Don't go weir grow weary of it. Even if you don't see the results yet. That's, that's children's ministry. That's parenting. That's, that's Awana, putting these verses in these kids year after year, right? And you don't know if it's going to stick. You don't know what it looks like. Years later, you might meet them, and they might remember and say, thank you. You don't know. You don't see it. Not yet, but we'll trust the Lord's word. I am bearing fruit. One of my favorites, Psalm 126 Verse 6, he who goes forth weeping, bearing precious seed, is the way that I memorized it, 
The one who goes forth with weeping, bearing precious seed, this is costly. That seed's expensive, but it's seed that instead of using this for food, grain for grinding, we're going to plant it in the ground and let it rot there in the confidence. It's costly. It costs us something. It's hard work to plant and to nurture and to care. And yet the one who goes forth, even with weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves, bringing his harvest with him. God will bless it. What he sets before you to do, what he calls you to do, even at times when it seems discouraging, remember this. The Lord Jesus himself said, and he said it here because he said it over and over and over again. Don't be afraid. Go ahead and speak up. Because I am with you. And I'm bearing fruit here. Okay? We can count on that. I want to remind you of this image that's on the front of your bulletin. I have been dying to talk to you about this image. Some of you who, who read in the, the, uh, the 30 Days on Mission booklet may know where I'm about to go here. But this is a close-up view of that temple of Apollo in ancient Corinth. The only classical temple originally built about 500 B.C. The only classical temple from old Corinth that the Romans did not destroy. And when they rebuilt the city, they, in fact, they upgraded it. They remodeled. They made it even, in their view, even better. It was a magnificent building. And that, that temple overshadowed. It stood right above the market stalls where Paul quite likely would have been making tents. The meat markets were dedicated to Apollo. There's that question that arises for the church in 1 Corinthians. That, that temple overshadowed all of downtown. And yet look at it today. There's nothing left. You know, there hasn't been a worship service at Apollo's temple in years, hundreds of years. In fact, 15, 16, I don't know how many hundreds of years, it has just stood there empty, a, by and large, an ignored relic. That temple, the remnants of it are not the reasons most people come to ancient Corinth today. They come for other reasons, they come to see where Paul stood before the, the judgment seat of Galileo, Galileo, which we're going to talk about next week. But I want you to look behind an empty remnant relic of a temple. I want you to look further back. Or take a look on your bulletin cover. And alongside the temple of Apollo, look again down there to the right. What do you, what do you see that is used every week? A church. Because in this place, in this city, with all of its prosperity and distractions and idolatry, in this place, Jesus told Paul, I have many people that I'm going to call to myself. There is fruit to be born here. There is much to be done in this city. And the temple stands empty. And the church continues because Jesus said that on this rock of a declaration of faith in Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell itself 
shall not prevail against it. God says, I'm with you. I've got this. I've got you. And you cannot know what I'm going to do. And you're going to be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the encouragement out of your word that you are with us. That that is your story, not merely in Acts chapter 18. That is your story from beginning to end. Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone in this world. You have not left us as orphans, but you have promised that you are with us. We thank you for that. Father, we pray then that you would give us courage. You would give us boldness. You'd also give us sensitivity. Father, whether tomorrow that's at work or it's at school, whether it's at home, whether it's in a small group, Father, Father, would you give us courage to trust you in our relationships with others so that you would use us to build up fellow believers in Christ, to share something of our hope in Christ, to help somebody near to us take a next step toward faith in Christ. Father, would you use us as we trust you Father, would you take this offering now? Lord, as we have ministry in this church together, in our community and around the world, would you use that as well in ways that we don't know? Father, we give because we trust that you still have much to do in this world and in this city. So, Father, we will trust that to you too. We we present it before you in Jesus' name. And all who agree said, amen.